are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me for this YouTube video where I deal with questions that people send in uh, to me over social media or over uh, email, or these particular questions come not during the live chat of a live broadcast that I do the question and answer videos on. These are questions that I couldn't get to from the last several live chats that I'm doing on this recorded version of our live question and answer video. So it won't do you any good to leave a question in the side chat. There is no side chat. I hope in a very soon upcoming Thursday afternoon to be with you again live. But until then, whenever it's possible for me to do these pre-recorded ones, I greatly enjoy it. Today's first question, we call it a lead question, is... How do I know when a Bible promise is for me? And it comes from Sandra. Here's Sandra's question. Again, these questions are taken from the last several question and answer videos I did. These were questions that came in on the live chat that I wasn't able to get to because of time. Here we go. Sandra asked this. Hello, Pastor David. I am from Mexico City. My question How can we recognize if a promise is just for Israel or for Christians in general? Thank you very much. God bless you. Well, Sandra, let me say, first of all, I'm so pleased that you're joining us from Mexico City. Very, very pleased to have uh, viewers from all over the world and especially from a wonderful place like Mexico City. I've actually been there a time and have visited some beautiful congregations there So it's a pleasure for me to deal with your question now over this video. And your question is a good one. How can we know when a Bible promise is for me? The Bible is filled with promises. But some of those promises are very specific. For example, God made a covenant or a promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12 describes how God promised Abraham a land, a nation, and a uh, a promise, a descendant, a, uh, a Messiah, that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So this covenant or promise that God made with Abraham was specific to Abraham and his covenant descendants. It's not a general promise for the whole world. And so it's worth it for us to take a look at these different promises that come to us in the Bible and ask ourselves, is this a promise for believers or those who will trust God for it in general? Or is it a promise specifically for specific people that may not apply to me? Here's the first question to ask. How does this promise look in a new covenant perspective? In other words, you'll find promises, for example, in the book of Joshua. God promised Israel that if they marched around the city of Jericho for seven times, and then on the seventh day, they did it seven times within a day, that uh, at the blowing of the trumpets, the walls of Jericho would fall down. That was a promise God made to them, but it's not an ongoing promise for the people of God forevermore. So under the old covenant, God made specific promises to specific people in specific situations that may no longer be valid for us today. You see, today, God's kingdom is no longer identified with one nation 
or with one king or ruler as it was in the days of the Old Testament. God's kingdom now is in and through his people across the nations. Now, I'm giving a very brief summary of that. The the actual idea of God's kingdom is broader than that and deserves more of a treatment, but I'm giving a very brief treatment. You see, when we sort of look at it through that grid, we can understand. Now, let me give you an example. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 says this, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Now, that's a favorite scripture and a favorable Bible promise of many people. After all, who doesn't want to think that God has promised them a future and a hope? It's a wonderful promise. But there are some who are quick to say, well, wait a minute. When God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, he's not speaking to the whole world. He's speaking to the nation of Israel specifically. And he's speaking to them about the restoration that he promised to bring, especially by restoring them from the exile that they had suffered because God allowed the Babylonians, allowed, even directed the Babylonians to conquer them because of their great wickedness. But God promised to restore, and most directly, most literally, that is the context of Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. God doesn't preface that promise by saying, thus I say to all the earth. No, this is a specific promise for Israel, and it was given to them under the old covenant. But take a step back. Look at what Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11 promises. It promises that God thinks about his people. Now, was that only restricted to Israel under the old covenant? I don't think so. It says that God desires peace for his people. Was that only restricted for Israel under the old covenant? I don't think so. And God says, I have a future and a hope for my people Was that only true of Israel under the Old Covenant? I don't think so. You see, can anyone properly say that there is less of a future for us under the New Covenant than there was under the Old Covenant? That there's less of a hope for us? (laughs) That God desires peace for us less under the New Covenant than he did under the Old Covenant? So do you see what I mean by saying, look at the promises through a new covenant perspective. And if you can see how this really applies and makes sense to us under the new covenant, then you can say, yes, Lord, this is a promise for us. Even if the promise was not originally made to the nations or to the earth or to all peoples. Now, there's one more thing that I need to talk about here. There is the concept of the Holy Spirit quickening a promise to us. Quickening is like old Christian talk for making something alive unto us. You see, there are times and places where the Holy Spirit will do this. He'll take a promise which was given to somebody else in the scriptures. I'm not trying to deny that. But the Holy Spirit will say to us, that promise is for you. I want you to hold on to that promise before God. Now, is it possible for somebody to be mistaken about such a thing? Of course it's possible. We're not trying to say that we are infallible in our um, 
ability to understand what the Holy Spirit may be guiding us into or speaking to us about. That's not the idea at all. That, that's something that can be misused, but it's a real phenomenon where the Holy Spirit will take a promise and say, that is for you. Now, I'm not going to get into it in great depth, but I'll just say this, that there are passages in the Old Testament that God made to Israel. <laughs> I'll be very plain about it. God made those promises to Israel. But as I have read and meditated on those passages, I would say very clearly and powerfully the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, David, that's my word for your life. I'm speaking that word to you. So to answer your question again, in general, we understand not every promise is to us. And one way that we can gauge this, I'm not saying it's the only way, is by looking at it, is this a promise that makes sense for us under the new covenant? But then beyond that, there is the phenomenon of the Holy Spirit quickening or making alive a promise to us. So I hope that helped you. Let me move on to my next question. It's really this question, how can I start sharing the gospel with others? It's a question from Tyler. Let me read you Tyler's exact question. He said this, what are some good conversation starters that I can use to start sharing the gospel? Well, Tyler, that's a great question. And to be honest, there are many, many ways. And I'm sure that if you take a look uh, at video resources, books out there, other things that you can see, you can find many, many ways that people can suggest that you use to start uh, conversations about the gospel. You can use gospel tracks. You can uh, bring up common things about movies or current events. But let me give you one that I think is very often effective, but we don't usually think of it. You see, we can just speak naturally to those who do not yet believe about our own spiritual life and experiences. Now, usually we're very timid to do that because we just keep telling ourselves over and over again how strange it will sound to them to hear this. But you know what? it probably won't sound as strange as you think it will sound. What I'm getting at is this. For us to come to other people and say, uh, hey, uh, what'd you do over the weekend? You know what? Sunday I went to church and God spoke to me so powerfully through the passage that the pastor was preaching on. Let me tell you something about it. Now, normally we would never speak to someone who does not yet believe in that way. We'd say, well, are you a Christian? Then I can talk to you about it. But listen, it's a free country, so to speak. Now, I know people from all over the world uh, watch these videos and such. So I, I don't know if you would say it's a free country wherever you live, but it's just an expression. You're free to speak about such things. And don't be afraid to tell people. Just be honest. Just tell them honestly and openly about your own spiritual life and experiences and you can even share with them some of the struggles. If you'll speak to them as if they were believers, that has some sort of magnetic quality of wanting to draw people in and learn something about the gospel. 
So Tyler, let me just suggest that to you. A way that you can effectively begin to share the gospel with other people is to simply speak to them in some regard as if they were already believers, especially when it comes to sharing the things from your own life with them. All right, on to the next question. Are singing and music spiritual gifts? This is something that John asked. And again, let me read you John's question. He wrote this. Are singing and music spiritual gifts that we should consider? John, let me say, that is a great question. I am consistently impressed by the quality of questions that we get from our viewers of these videos. And I think that's a tremendous question. Are singing and music spiritual gifts that we should consider? Well, let me say this. Singing and music are not specifically mentioned as gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament. When you turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, or a few other passages in the New Testament that give us something of a listing of spiritual gifts, when you read those lists, you will not read of a gift of singing, a gift of songwriting, a gift of worship leading. You you will not find those specific gifts mentioned. But this brings up a great question. When we read those lists of the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and a few other places in the New Testament, when we read those lists, did God intend those lists to be exhaustive? In other words, are they complete? Would any of us say, if a spiritual gift is not listed in that list, it can't be a spiritual gift. It's not real. And I tend towards saying that those lists are not exhaustive. They are great examples, but God never intended in 1 Corinthians 12, in Romans 12, and anywhere else to give us an exhaustive and perfectly complete list of spiritual gifts. There may be legitimate spiritual gifts that are not listed in those verses. Now, I know that some people may disagree with that, and I suppose we're free to disagree. The scriptures don't really tell us one way or another. But I will say this. When we see David, the son of Jesse, playing music for Saul, you can look it up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We see that when David played music for Saul, it had a profound and helpful spiritual effect on the tormented king. There was something anointed and, if you could say, gifted about what David did for King Saul. And, there certainly does seem to be what we would call an anointing for leading other people in worship. Do you see what I'm getting at? I think we can regard leading other people in worship as a spiritual gift. Certainly, some people seem to have the spiritual ability, anointing, calling, whatever you want to call it. They seem to have a spiritual ability for leading others in worship that other people do not have. And a great explanation for this would simply be to say that this is a gift of the Holy Spirit and 
not only does the Holy Spirit give different gifts to different people as it pleases the wisdom of the Spirit, but he also gives those gifts in different measures to other people. That is true as well. So anyway, that is a great question, John. I'm glad you asked it. I don't think we come up with a definitive answer biblically, but I would say that there are gifts of the Spirit that aren't specifically mentioned in the classic lists that the New Testament gives us. Okay, Sicero asks this question. Does everyone have a relationship with God? Let me read to you Sicero's question in its fullness. This is what they write. I've always believed that God wants a relationship with us. But doesn't God already have a relationship with all of us? It's either a hostile relationship or a peaceful one. It's either Adam or under Christ. Again, another great question. That's a really wise and insightful question, if I could say that. And to cut to the chase, what you say is true. God does have a relationship with humanity. All of humanity has some kind of a relationship with God from God's perspective. (laughs) When God looks down on humanity, it's not like God has chosen to ignore some of humanity. Every person who walks this earth, every person made in the image of God has some kind of relationship with him. However, many people do not have a conscious relationship towards God. In other words, God has a relationship towards them, but they have no conscious relationship towards him. And look, let's be honest. Many people don't want a relationship with God. They want God to leave them alone. God, you stay and do your business. I'll do my business. And why don't you just leave me alone? I don't want you to bother me. That might even be the majority perspective of the human race towards God. Does this not explain much of what we see in the modern atheism of our day? This modern resurgence of atheism is a desperate attempt to say, God, I don't believe you exist, and I don't want you to have anything to do with me. Just leave me alone. And in fact, the thought of a personal relationship with a holy God seems terrifying to many people outside of Jesus Christ. You see, it's kind of like this when I was in grade school. If somebody said, David, you can have a personal relationship with the school principal. I would have said, no, thank you. I think the school principal of my school was Mr. Olinger, if I remember right. And Mr. Olinger was a nice enough man. It's just when you're a little kid in school, you don't want to have anything to do with the school principal. The further you can stay away from him or her, the better. Because they are the ultimate authority at the school, or at least it seems to be that way to a small child. No, thank you very much. School principal, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and if our paths never cross, that's just fine with me. Do you see why I say that that's the attitude that many people have towards God? Now, 
when we talk about having a personal relationship with God, it's really just a short way of speaking for a real, right relationship with God. And we often speak in such shortened ways, and sometimes these shortened ways are theologically imprecise. They might be even theologically incorrect, but they're just customs of speech that we get into. So, Sicaro, I want to agree with you. It is absolutely true that from God's perspective, every human being has a relationship with him. God relates to every human being. However, many, many people in this world, they have no conscious relationship towards God. And really, that's what we're talking about when we invite people to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, who is the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, on to our next question. This question comes from Rebecca. And basically, she's asking, how do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Here's Rebecca's question. I'll read it just as she wrote it. This Sunday is prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. How do we do that or lead our kids to do this? Great question, Rebecca. You know, you're drawing the idea, whether you know it or not, from a verse in Psalm 122, verse 6, which simply says this, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. It's a beautiful thought, isn't it? First of all, instructing God's people or really anyone who will listen to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And then that blessing given to the one who will make that prayer. By the way, it's assumed in Psalm 122 verse 6 that the one who prays for Jerusalem has a love for Jerusalem. But how do we do it? How do we pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Again, Rebecca, great question. Let me give you some thoughts. First of all, pray for literal peace in a place, the city of Jerusalem, that has known so much war and conflict and terrorism. Pray for literal peace in Jerusalem. That's number one. Number two, pray for spiritual peace that the Jewish people would turn to Jesus, their Messiah, and find the spiritual peace that only Jesus can bring. You know, Jesus said, My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. And Jesus said this, Not as the world gives do I give to you, but he gives us his peace. Now, that's a wonderful idea. But it's true, not just in this idea of having peace in society or having inner peace. You see, that great Hebrew word, shalom, what it really means is well-being. It means God's goodness. It means uh, health and goodness in every aspect. And that's what we want when we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're not just praying for hostility to be over. We're praying for God's goodness and well-being to flood the city. We're praying for it to flood the Jewish people and that they would turn to Jesus, their Messiah. Let me add this, though. 
If you're going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, then also pray for the Arabic peoples who live in Jerusalem and in the occupied territories. Pray that they would also know the peace, the shalom of Jesus the Messiah. So, Rebecca, great question. I hope that gives you some practical ideas on how you can pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, a question from Jen. She wants to know how she can hear Jesus and walk in the Spirit. Here's her question. I have been burdened with the verse, Depart from me, I knew you not. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. While I have seen God work in my life in several ways, one being the spiritual gift of having Scripture come back to me in the work of ministry. However, I don't know how to keep in step with the Holy Spirit and walk in the Spirit. How do I do that? And know that Jesus knows me. I don't hear him as Jesus says. I will know his voice. Oh, Jen, God bless you. God bless you for your question. And let me deal with it really in two parts. I'll separate it into two questions. The first question is this, how can I walk in the Spirit? And the second question is this, how can I hear the voice of Jesus? Okay, well, first of all, how do we walk in the Spirit? Let me give you some thoughts that come to mind immediately. Number one, we walk in the Spirit by practicing basic Christian disciplines. What are those? Prayer, reading the Bible, worshiping, connecting with other Christians. These are ways that we walk in the Spirit, that we give attention to the things of the Spirit, that we try to feed and strengthen our spirit. You see, these are ways that we give attention to spiritual things and thus walk in the Spirit. I'm not trying to say that that's the only aspect of it, but don't neglect the Christian basics. Reading your Bible, prayer, worship, connecting with other Christians. That's the first step, I would say, in walking in the Spirit. The second step is this. Consciously think of God and bring Him into, so to speak, your daily experiences. In other words, do something that some people have called this, It's the title of an old book by a man who tried to endeavor to do this in his life, to practice the presence of God. In other words, realize that God is with you in everything that you do. You're driving to work, God's right there in the car. Thank you, Lord, for being with me in the car. And just turn your thoughts towards him. You go to work and you're working on a show. Well, think about God being right there with you. You're on your lunch break. Think about God with you consciously bring the presence of God, think of him into your daily occurrences, and you'll realize that the Holy Spirit is with you every step of the way. And then a third way, and I think this is an important way. Step out and do something to serve God, serve his people, and to serve a needy world. You know, we oftentimes sense the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit the most when we put ourselves out there to serve the Lord in some way. So it's a wonderful thing to do. So again, Christian basics, 
consciously think of God and bring him into your daily experiences, so to speak. I say so to speak because he's in your experiences already, but we make a conscious awareness of his presence in those things. And then thirdly, step out and do things to serve God, his people, and a needy world. Now that's the first question. How do you walk in the spirit? Here's your second question. How do you hear the voice of Jesus? Look, you hear the voice of Jesus by reading, studying, and meditating, and memorizing his word. Please, we should not try to hear the voice of God, especially in some spiritual or mystical experience. I know this is difficult for people because some people speak in a very casual way about God speaking to them. You know, I was walking down the street and the Lord told me this, and then the Lord told me that. And when I was doing my laundry, the Lord told me another thing. And then when I was doing this, God told me something else. And there is a very casual way, I would say, an overly casual way of people. And when people speak like that, many people get the impression that not only is this person living on some unattainable spiritual level, but they must be saying that they hear the audible voice of God all the time because they seem so certain about God speaking to them. I want to say this again. Do not try to hear the voice of God, especially in some spiritual or mystical experience. That opens up the door to all kinds of error and deception. Instead, look to the Word of God. And if the Holy Spirit has something to say to you on the way, you're going to hear it. You'll hear it. Look to the Word. Listen, this is what we know is the voice of God. Now, I believe that God speaks to people today, but there are many people who think God has spoken to them, and maybe He hasn't. But I'll tell you where you can know God speaks it's in his word. We should seek that God would speak to us in his word. So have that in mind. And let me add one more thing. I want you to remember that the Holy Spirit can do supernatural things in a very natural way. We easily fall into the trap of expecting God to work in strange ways. Now, sometimes God does work in strange ways, but normally the Holy Spirit is doing supernatural things in natural ways. Why? Because it's in the nature of the Holy Spirit to not call attention to himself, but to give glory to Jesus Christ. Okay, let me move on to another question here. Elsa is basically asking this question, how can I be sure that I have faith? Here's Elsa's question just as she wrote it. I want to think that I have faith and trust in God, but oftentimes I don't know if it's something I truly have or if it's something I only think I have. How can I be sure that I have true faith? Elsa, great question. How can we be sure that we have faith? All right, let me give you a few things to think about. Number one, fill yourself with God's word. I said it before, I'll say it again. Fill yourself with God's word. Remember this, 
faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Romans chapter 10, verse 17. We can grow in faith just by hearing and learning and thinking about the great word of God towards us. So don't neglect your Bible if you want to grow in faith. And by the way, if you need help understanding the Bible, I have a verse-by-verse written commentary throughout the entire Bible that you can find at EnduringWord.com. Again, that web address is EnduringWord.com and just use the commentary menu to find Bible commentary on every book of the Bible, every chapter of the Bible, and I can't say I have something to say about every verse in the Bible, but it's pretty comprehensive. So that's the first thing. Fill yourself with God's Word if you want to grow in faith. Here's the second thing. Elsa, don't try to believe. Just believe. Stop making yourself trying to believe. Believing is just settling yourself, having rest in your heart, and trust in God. You don't have to work up a certain amount of faith. No. What is more important than the amount of faith that we have is where our faith is put. And our faith is put in the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who's perfectly revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ recorded for us in this book, the Bible, the Hebrew, and the Greek scriptures. Have I made it clear enough? (laughs) Believe it. Don't try to believe. Just believe. Don't, Don't make it more complicated than it needs to be. Tell yourself this. God is trustworthy. I can trust him and trust his promises. Faith is about God, not about me. Just tell yourself that over and over again. God is trustworthy. I can trust him and trust his promises. Faith is about God. It's not about me. Let me give you one more aspect of this. Speak out your faith. Don't let faith thoughts be the only way that you exercise faith. Now listen, faith thoughts are better than unbelief thoughts, of course. But there's real power and wisdom and strength when we speak out our faith. I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe he was born of a virgin. I believe he lived a sinless life. There is power just when we say these things. So don't be shy. Don't be afraid to say them. Speak out your faith and you will find that your faith grows and strengthens. Hope that's helpful for you. Let me go on to the next question. The next question, uh, Rivera is basically asking, is God a female? Here's the full question here. Hello, Pastor. Can you give us your thoughts on the idea that God is a female and what Scripture says about the femininity of God? For example, uh, Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, Job chapter 38, verses 28 and 29, and Isaiah chapter 42, 14. Thank you. Well, Rivera, thank you for your question. And it's a great question. 
Let me read some of the passages that you're quoting. Now, to be honest, I think maybe you might have given a mistaken reference when you wrote Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, uh, but we'll leave that one aside. Uh, Job chapter 38, verses 28 and 29 say this. Has the rain a father or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice and the frost of heaven? Who gives it birth? So here we see God speaking of himself, but at least in some terms using female imagery, the imagery of the womb, the imagery of giving birth, even though this is definitely allegorical because he's talking about things having to do with the heavens, the dew, the ice, the frost. Okay, that's one. The next one, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 14 says this. Again, the Lord is speaking. I have held my peace a long time. I have been still and restrained myself. Now I will cry like a woman in labor. I will pant and gasp at once. Again, this is the Lord speaking, saying that on the day when judgment is revealed, God will cry out like a woman in labor. Again, that's some use of feminine imagery. Now, I dealt with these passages and the question in greater depth on a question and answer program that I did on July 30th of this year, 2020. So go back and look for that video, but let me give you a succinct answer of what I said in that video. Number one, God is neither male nor female. We need to understand that about God. God is neither male nor female. He's beyond male or female. Number two, as God reveals his nature to us, we see attributes that we normally associate with men. Strength, a warrior nature. Those are just a couple examples. And we see attributes in God that we normally associate with women. Tender care, nurture, whatever you want to call it. So we see what we would call masculine attributes and some of what we would call feminine attributes in God. That's the second point. Number three, in the Bible, God overwhelmingly presents himself to us in a masculine sense. Friends, there are thousands of Bible references to God in a masculine sense, and there are only a handful of references, perhaps less than 20 in the entire Bible, that give a female association of God in any way, even if it's just purely metaphorical or tangential, but any kind of feminine connection with God, there's only a handful of verses. So I want you to weigh it out here. You have thousands of verses that present God in a masculine way and very few, probably less than 20, that associate God with anything feminine. The other thing I want you to think about is this. Jesus who was God manifested in the flesh, he came as a man. He did not come as a woman. He did not come as some kind of androgynous being. So, 
if we will rightly divide the word of truth, we see that God wants us to think of him in a masculine sense, while at the same time understanding that ultimately God is not male or female, and that God does have many attributes that we normally associate with women. Yet overwhelmingly, God wants us to think of him in a masculine sense. Therefore, the teaching that God is a woman, uh, or such a teaching like that, God is feminine, whatever, it is so misguided as to be dangerous. It ignores or denies how God has overwhelmingly presented himself to us in the Bible. Again, the God of the Bible is neither male nor female, but is overwhelmingly presented to us in the masculine sense. All right, hope that helps you there. Let me move on to another question here. This question comes from Susie, and she wants to know, will Old Testament saints be resurrected at the same time as the church? Here's the question. Will Old Testament prophets be raised in the rapture of the church? Or, since they are not the church, will they be raised at a separate time? Well, what you're kind of making reference to here, Susie, is something that's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, where we read this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Well, that's glorious, isn't it? Now, notice this. Based on 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, I would say that the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament saints, a larger group, will receive their resurrection bodies when the church does as well. You see, anyone who is saved, Old Testament or New Testament, anyone who is saved is saved in Christ. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 says that it is the dead in Christ who will be raised and receive their resurrection bodies. They have existed with God in heaven, but they have not yet received their resurrection bodies. Now, I believe that there is a definite difference between the church and Israel. Not everybody who is a Christian believes that. There are directions of theology that say there's essentially no difference between the church and Israel, but I don't believe that. I believe that there is a definite difference between the church and Israel, but... There are not some who are saved in Christ and other people who are saved in another way. You see, either looking forward or looking to the past, everyone who is saved is saved in Jesus the Messiah. Everyone who will be saved is saved in Christ. And since 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, doesn't say that the dead in the church will be raised, it says the dead in Christ. So that would lead me to believe that it will be the faithful ones of the Old Testament as well.
Here's a question from Truth Speaker, who simply says, Can the Nephilim be saved? Uh, there's a question. Can Nephilim be saved with a believer praying for them, or are they damned no matter what? Well, interesting question there. I have to say, I don't believe that there are Nephilim today. I believe that that ended with the flood. Look, I know people can make objections to that. I'm not going to get into it right now. I'm just telling you what I believe. But let me say this. Any human being, any person who is made in the image of God can be prayed for. And their damnation, well, that part is God's business, not ours. So what do we do? We pray. I don't think there's anybody out of reach of our prayers except if it would be specifically revealed to you by the Holy Spirit. I've never experienced this, but I've heard some people relate their experience where they've prayed for somebody for a long time. And then one day the Lord spoke to them and said, you don't need to pray anymore. It's not going to happen for them. Now, I would regard that as very unique, strange thing. It's certainly not normal business. But John, in his letter, relates that there are people that perhaps you should not pray for. So again, that's God's business, not ours. Uh, but having to do with the Nephilim, I don't believe that there are Nephilim on the earth today. I believe all, all that ended with the flood. Now, for our last question, we're going to go to this question. I think it's our last question. What are good works? And Castiano asked this. Um, Hello, Pastor Dave. What are good works? Are good works only extraordinary things? Or can good works be as simple as being a wife, husband, mother, or even a slave? Well, Castiano, uh, what a great question. And let me just say, you're on to something very good and important there. Good works are simple things. Let me read to you from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. It says this, That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Castellano, I want you to know, we can glorify God in big ways through a quiet life. Good works are everyday things that we do for the honor and glory of God. When you do the work of being a good worker at your job, do it under the glory of God, and that's good work. Uh, when you're a good husband, a good wife, a good son, a good daughter, a good parent, all of those things, those are to the glory of God if we will simply pay attention and do them as the Lord commands us. So good works can be very simple things, and they're honorable and glorious before God. Again, we can glorify God in big ways, even through a very quiet life. Well, that's going to be it for this recorded session of question and answers. I hope that you'll join me the next time that we get together, this next time that I will answer questions live on the YouTube channel. We do it at 12 noon 
Pacific time, West Coast time in the United States on Thursdays. And I hope you can join me for the next one. Thank you to all those who pray for the ongoing work of Enduring Word and for the Bible commentary work and the translation work. It's exciting to see how God is using things. And it's always a pleasure for me to be with you here on a Thursday afternoon, whether it's live or pre-recorded. God bless you. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.